And uh, I've, my, name, my name is John, and I've just got the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And uh, we've started last week a series called Refacing Ancient Beliefs. And um, we said as we started the series, we're not, we're not looking to give lots of people uh, information. And some of the topics that we're going through might seem like quite controversial topics. And uh, we, we haven't sat down as a preaching team and said, right, what are the big five? What are the controversial topics we can hit? <laughs> we want to be controversial. That's not really not the goal. And at the same time, it's also not to flood us with information. Uh, the, the goal of, of any truth is to set people free. Freedom is, is the goal of any truth. And so as, uh, as we go through uh, this week and the next couple of weeks, I want you to understand that our, our goal is freedom for you. And as I introed the series last week, I asked two things that, of us, that, that we would learn with an open Bible and an open mind. I think too often the, the, the church has read has learned with an open Bible and a closed mind, and sometimes we read with a open mind and a closed Bible, and we want to learn with both of those things, an open mind and an open Bible. The early church fathers had a saying that went like this, Ecclesia Semper Reformada. It simply means that the church is always reforming. The church is always reforming and changing. We're not saying that the Bible changes at all. We're not saying that God changes at all. And we're not questioning the authority of Scripture. So the goal of this series is not to question the authority of Scripture. We're not saying, does the Bible apply to 21st century life? We're not asking that. We're asking, how does the Bible apply to 21st century life? So we're assuming that the Bible is authoritative, right? We're assuming that the Bible has authority over our lives and we should be following it. So throughout this series, I'm asking uh, those of us that follow Jesus... Those of us that call ourselves, that consider ourselves Christians, to make a commitment to go where Jesus goes and to go where the text goes, not to where we've always been before. So if you, if you only go where you've always been before, you'll always end up where you've always been. So I'm asking those of us that follow Jesus, that consider ourselves Christians, will you, will you go where the text goes and where Jesus goes? That's what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. Otherwise, Jesus is just our Savior. He's not our Lord. When, when, we, when we make Jesus our Lord, it means that we follow him. Where he goes, we go. And so I'm asking for that commitment from us. A man by the name of Tim Keller says this, Our beliefs are formed not only through reason and argument, but also through social conditioning. The only way, therefore, to be as thoughtful, balanced, and unprejudiced as possible is to be highly aware of your cultural bias. Are you aware where your beliefs come from? Where do you, the beliefs that you have come from? They're not only, your beliefs don't only come from reason. Your beliefs don't only come from arguments. They also come from social conditioning. It's called groupthink. If you go to Northwood, you will think about uh, certain private schools in a certain way. Right? That's a guarantee. Regardless of how good or bad those schools are, if you go there, if you go to Northwood, that's how you will think, right? Social conditioning. Christians have to make a commitment to go where Jesus and the text takes us, not only to where we've always been. I think there's too few people in the church who are regularly offended by Jesus. When I look at the life of Jesus, when I look at his entire ministry, he spent his entire ministry offending not only the Pharisees, but the people that followed him, the people that considered themselves Christians. He spent his entire ministry offending them. I think that there's too many people who are comfortable serving a God who never challenges them, who never offends them, and then we wonder why we don't see the miracles that we've been praying for. 
Well, it's because miracles don't happen in your comfort zones with a God who is comfortable. Miracles happen on the fringes of society, in the place and with people that often offend us. See, all of us have a tendency to confront sins that offend us the most and excuse the sins that offend us the least. All of us do that. All of our beliefs are not only formed through reason and argument, but social conditioning. Only the Bible judges all of us equally. Only the Bible judges all of us equally. And the the judgment that the Bible makes is not complex, it's quite simple. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So our goal through this series isn't to present a whole lot of information, but to set people free with the truth of the gospel. See, the Bible doesn't say, guard your heart, because it's the wellspring of experience. The Bible doesn't say, guard your mind, because it's the wellspring of information. The Bible says, guard your heart, because it's the wellspring of life. I think too many people have valued knowledge and experience over the life of God. And so we have a whole bunch of people walking around with full of knowledge and full of experience, but without any life. The person of the gospel is Jesus, and we want to introduce him to you through this series if you've never met him. And if you have met him before, we would like to perhaps introduce you to a different part of his characteristics this evening. So today I want to speak about divorce. I think divorce is a topic that I've, certainly I've never heard spoken on, taught on in the church, other than perhaps one or two throwaway lines either about how God hates divorce or how divorce is never an option. Those are the only two things I've ever heard spoken about in church. I'm sure people have taught on it. I've just never sat under it. Today, I want to set people free with the truth of the gospel. So where the church has preached truth without love, the world has responded with love without truth. And so the church has looked at that and said, but there can't be love without truth. And so we double down on the truth and we preach more truth to the exclusion of love. So the Bible says that God is love, and Jesus says, I am the truth. And so truth cannot exist without love, and love cannot exist without truth. Those are not just concepts that God teaches on, concepts that God wants from us. It's who He is. And so the gospel is grounded in God's character. He is love, and He is truth. We cannot preach truth without love, and we cannot preach love without truth. It has to be both. There can never be a lack of truth or love in our attempt to be both biblically faithful and pastorally relevant. I think that the issue of divorce and the separate issue of remarriage is perhaps an area where truth and love have not coexisted very often before. Those who gravitate towards one and not the other are equally incorrect and equally damaging in the error, one in the short term and one in the long term. So I want to start off this evening Um, by saying that we would normally preach 20 to 25 minutes. If you're visiting here, uh, our goal is normally 20 to 25 minutes. And uh, this evening, I'm probably going to go a little bit longer, 30 to 35 minutes, Um, not longer than that, which is still shorter than a double maths lesson. So you'll get through it, I promise you. Um, But I felt like the the topic that we have to go through this evening is a little bit long to go through in 20 minutes. It's it's a little bit long to go through in 30 minutes, but uh, at least it gives us a little bit more time. So... Uh, I will go a little bit longer than we normally go this evening. But I want to start off by affirming a high view of two things as as we set up our theology on divorce. A high view. We we have to have a high view of Scripture and a high view of covenant. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Study to show yourself as a workman approved, someone who correctly handles the word of truth. 
it's, it's very important for us to correctly handle Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about uh, the Word of God, and it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And if you mishandle a very sharp two-edged sword, you end up with a problem, right? It, says it, it goes on to say that it, it's so sharp because it divides soul from spirit, and it judges the thoughts and intents of a man's heart. That's why it has to be so sharp. And unfortunately, so many people have read Scripture and they've incorrectly handled it, and so they've used a very sharp sword to do a lot of damage. History is littered with examples of people, most of them, or many of them, well-meaning, who've incorrectly handled the word of truth. Jesus asks us to have two things, the heart of a seeker and the faith of of a child, the heart of a seeker and the faith of a child. Now, I think that we get into error when we set ourselves up as the judges of truth and not the seekers of truth. There's too many people who see themselves as the holders of truth, and so we stop being seekers. I think that, friends, we get into error when we start assigning reasons to why God doesn't do things. Why didn't God heal this person? Why, didn't, why did this person leave the church? Why did this person get divorced? Why is someone homosexual? Instead of being humble enough to simply say, I don't know. The heart of a seeker, one who's desperate for the truth, but who is also not the judge of what is true. So remember that there is absolute truth. There is such a thing as true truth, absolute truth. And the good news tonight is that it's not you. You are not the truth. You, my understanding of the truth, my, I can study as much as I want. I can have as much experience as I want. What I know is not absolute truth. And the same goes for you. The good news is. So Jesus says that we must have the faith of a child. And uh, I think that we've often thought of that as meaning we must have blind trust in Jesus. And I think there's an element of that and also an element of innocence of children. But you know one of the most endearing qualities that kids have? They think their parents know everything. My small kids come to me with any question and no matter what I tell them, they still believe it. It's very hard as a father to, uh, to honor my kids in that way. When they believe what they tell me, it's quite a big responsibility with what I've got to tell them, right? Teenagers are quite different to that, though. Suddenly, you're a kid and you believe whatever your parents tell you is true and right. And then as you become a teenager, suddenly, it's not. Your parents go from knowing everything overnight to knowing nothing. <laughs> uh, one of my teenagers last week told me that he didn't need to study for his maths exam anymore because he already knew everything in the test that was coming up the next day. He knew it all already. Um, so I, I thought that's wonderful. Maybe I can save a term or two of school fees uh, that's coming up. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I think that there's too many people that walk around with the faith of a teenager and not enough people who walk around with the faith of a child. See, the faith of a teenager says, I know everything. I don't need to ask my father. The faith of a child says, I need to ask my father and trust whatever he says to me. To have a high view of Scripture is to have the heart of a seeker and to have the faith of a child. When, when we think of ourselves as the holders of truth and not the seekers of truth, we often get into error because we start assigning reasons to things instead of saying, I don't know. To admit that you don't know is an act of humility, right? 
And the longer you've been following Jesus for, the more humility that it's required of you. When somebody asks you a question and you've been following Jesus for uh, six months and they ask you a question and you say, I don't know, it's not really a big deal for you. But if someone's been following Jesus for 20 years and somebody asks you a question and your answer is, I don't know, that requires quite a, a deal of humility from you. The book of James says that God gives grace to the humble. I think that one of the reasons that people don't have the grace to live in gray areas is simply because we're not humble enough. We're not humble enough to say, I don't know, and so therefore we don't have grace to live in the gray area of, I'm not sure, but let's find out. Remember, we said that we make a commitment to go where Jesus and the text leads us, not only where we've always gone before. We said we must learn with an open Bible and an open mind, keep seeking Jesus, keep having the faith of the child. There is a story about Peter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. Uh, Peter's hungry, and while the people are preparing him food, he falls into a trance, and, and, he, and he see, God speaks to him in a vision, and he sees a sheet, a sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of animals in it, which would have been unclean for a Jewish man to eat. And uh, God says to him in this, in this vision, kill and eat. And Peter says to God, surely not. I've, I've, I've never eaten anything unclean my entire life. And then God speaks to him a second time, and he says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And P- Peter says to God, my entire life, I've been told that if I want to please God, I must do this and I must not do that. And Jesus says, well, actually, if you want to please me, then you need to go where I'm going. If you want to please me, you need to follow me. You need to make a commitment to go where Jesus goes, where the text goes, not only where you've always been. A high commitment to Scripture. Too many Christians do, are, are satisfied with doing the easy work of what does the Bible say as opposed to doing the hard work of what does the Bible mean. This is seeking truth. So if, if you want to build your theology on what, what does the Bible say only, here's what the Bible says. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Take it out. Right? So if it, if it is what Jesus says only, we've got spoons under the seats. Tonight, you get a spoon, you get a spoon. Everybody gets a spoon. First Corinthians Chapter 6, there's an instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So on the count of three, turn to your neighbor. <laughs> we understand this. It's not, it's not only what does the Bible say. It has to be what does the Bible mean. It's far more importantly, what does the Bible mean? An open Bible and an open mind, a commitment to go where Jesus and the text takes us. A high view of covenant means that marriage is one of only three institutions that are regulated by God. Our marriage covenants mirror the relationship that Jesus has with his church. A covenant means that I hold nothing back. I give all of myself to you, and you give all of yourself to me. So you would have heard stories that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Friends, it's simply not true. It was a 2014 census done in America. We've got far more liberal divorce laws and a far far more liberal society than we are. In a 2014 census, it found that 72% of people were married still to their first spouse. 72% of of all first marriages lasted a lifetime. Of the remaining 28%, 8% 8 were widowed, so they were broken by death. Which, which puts the actual divorce rate at between 20 and 
when you put that into second marriages, 88% of second marriages lasted a lifetime. Imagine the change to people's attitudes towards marriage if the narrative was the majority of marriages last a lifetime, not 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Imagine the change to the narrative. What I'm asking today is not that we view our covenants as less than they are, but that we keep a high view, and in some cases a higher view than we currently have, of covenant combined with a high view of Scripture. But we also have to value human life. I think in the past, many well-meaning people have fought for people to stay married and not necessarily fought for healthy marriages. We'll get to this a little bit later. As you begin to understand what the Bible means on a certain subject, how it applies to 21st century life, I find that one of the best ways is to look at a subject and then see what uh, what direct instruction or principle is applicable at four times in Scripture. When God creates, is there something in creation, either a direct instruction or a principle that applies to the subject? When God establishes a people and he gives them his law, is there a principle or instruction? When Jesus teaches, does he address it directly? And then when the church is formed from now Gentiles and not any Jewish people, is there any apostolic instruction that, that we can apply to it? So Rich spoke last week about the redemptive trajectory of scripture, which I believe is correct, and I'm, I'm not going to go into it this evening. If you were not child last week, I recommend uh, jumping onto our website, anthem.org.za, wherever you get your podcasts, jump on, have a listen, uh, and see what he had to say. See, but the problem is that we don't know exactly where we are on that redemptive trajectory scale. Because we don't know where we are, we always have to tether what we believe right now to everything that God has revealed before us. We can't just, I, I can't just say, one day at the end of time, I'm not going to have this body anymore. In the coming kingdom, I'm not going to have this body anymore. Therefore, this body don't, doesn't matter. I can just do whatever I want with it. No, this body is a temple, and I need to take care of it. But I also don't place any confidence in it, because I know that one day it will fade away. And so when I read scriptures at these four times, it gives me a clearer understanding of God's, what God's design for my body is, and I can then put that into perspective of the coming kingdom. See, how we read the Bible is called, a fancy word is hermeneutics, and it just means discovering the meaning of a text in its original context. So it's thanks to hermeneutics that we can believe that the Bible is completely authoritative and completely true, and at the same time, we don't pluck out our eyes and, and greet one another with a kiss in church right? We can hold those two things together. It's authoritative, and yet we don't pluck out our eyes because uh, of hermeneutics, of how we, how we understand the meaning of the text in its original context. So let's get into some scriptures dealing with divorce at these four places. Creation. Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Moses writes in the book of Genesis that the reason man and woman leave their families and covenant together in marriage and become one flesh is because Adam and Eve were created as one flesh. That is why. Because they were created as one flesh, God says, from that time on, every time men and women choose to covenant in marriage together, in my eyes, they will become one flesh. Friends, we have to keep a high view of 
covenant. Our covenantal relationships are more binding than our flesh and blood relationships. So I have a flesh and blood relationship with my parents and with my kids. They are my flesh and blood, up and down. All right? But I'm not in covenant with my parents, and I'm not in covenant with my kids. I lay down my life for my kids. I would die for my kids. I love them. And my parents the same. But I'm not in covenant with them. I'm only in covenant with my wife. So what that means is, when there's a, if there's a fire in my house, my wife is my priority, not my children. That's what it means to have a high view of covenant. I, I don't want to take it heavy. I'm not planning on anything. <laughs> Nothing's coming up, right, if this is going to the police. But I want us to understand the, the emphasis and the high view of a covenant that we need to have. My covenant with my wife is stronger and more important in God's eyes than my own flesh and blood, my kids, who I would who I die for. Deuteronomy at law, when, when God gives his law in Deuteronomy, verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and, and if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man, her second husband dislikes her and writes her a divorce or he dies uh, and she's divorced, she's not allowed to remarry the first husband uh, again. Most scholars agree, that's I've paraphrased the end part of that scripture there, you might have, you might have noticed. <laughs> um, most scholars agree that this is a scripture that Jesus has asked his opinion on in, in Matthew chapter 19, which we'll look at in a minute. But it hinges on these two words, becomes displeasing and something indecent. Becomes displeasing and something indecent. So this scripture seems quite disempowering to women, but you need to remember the time and the context that it's written into so time and time again, Jesus is told by the Pharisees what the law says, and he keeps taking them back to what the law means. He says, You've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, don't resist an evil person. He says, the greater law is love. He says, the law of Moses says we should stone the woman caught in adultery. And he says, yes, fair enough, but the person who is without sin cast the first stone. Actually, what the law means is that only the righteous get to judge. Rich spoke last week about looking forward in our understanding to the coming kingdom and what it will look like. And what Jesus does is he takes the law that's given at a particular time and he says, look back to its original intent. And so we can't simply take an instruction and apply it to everyone every time. We have to put it into the context of its original intent, the understanding of the people who are receiving at the time, and into the context of the kingdom that is to come. So every command in the Bible, every single command in the Bible is binding on every single one of us. That's what it means for the, for the scriptures to have authority. Every command in the Bible is binding on every one of us when it's rightfully applied. There's no part of the scriptures that can be rightfully ignored, but each of them have to be understood and applied correctly. Remember, the Bible isn't, the question isn't, does the Bible apply to 21st century life? The, Bible is, the question is, how does the Bible apply to 21st century life? So Matthew chapter 19 says this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So I think there's potentially a danger for us either to read Jesus' words and take them literally, which can lead us to error in some instances, for example, pluck out your eye. And the other error is that we can dismiss some of what Jesus taught directly only as hyperbole and exaggeration and contextual. And both of those are wrong. We have to understand Jesus' metaphors and then apply them to our context today without diminishing or contradicting either his direct words or the rest of Scripture. Unfortunately, people on both sides of any interpretation are going to be accused and get accused of twisting Scripture to suit their own needs. But we have to remain humble with the heart of the seek, with the heart of a seeker, with the faith of a child, if we are to draw any meaningful conclusions. See, Jesus' disciples constantly went to him, and after he taught, they said to him, "What do you mean by this?" We have to have the same truth-seeking attitude and not merely leaning on our own understanding. Jesus has strong words for those who tone down his teachings in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. But he also has strong words for those who mercilessly cause little ones to stumble in Matthew 18, verse 6. And those who lay burdens on others that they themselves would not carry if they were in the same situation in Matthew 23, verse 4. So in one sense, some of Jesus' teachings are hyperbole and they are radical exaggeration. The earliest followers of Jesus didn't rip out their eyes and rip off their arms and sell all their possessions and live homeless on the streets. But at the same time, they're not exaggeration at all. The earliest followers of Jesus also claimed victory over sin's power in their lives. Jesus' demands are far more radical and life-changing than most of his followers would like to admit. Most scholars agree that what Jesus is referring to in this discussion with the Pharisees is a disagreement between two rabbinical schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammah. So there was two rabbis, Shammah and Hillel, who had a rabbinical school. So they would teach people to become rabbis uh, or, or Jewish priests. And the school of Shammah held that this matter was only something that you could only get divorced for a serious matter such as adultery. The school of Hillel was a more liberal school, and it split the phrase into two parts, into a matter and indecency, which allowed for a loophole. So indecency being sexual immorality or uh, adultery, but then there was, it wasn't just indecency, it was also a matter. And a matter could be whatever you felt it to be. You could get divorced for a matter, ranging from, I don't like your cooking. There was a legitimate reason for divorce, according to some of their teachings. To, I don't like the way you look. I don't like the way you dress. You were late home from work today. You didn't pluck the vegetables very well today. Anything could be a matter. And so Jesus, is, Jesus as a rabbi is being asked and tested by the Pharisees, which of these two schools of interpretation do you agree with? He's asking to weigh in. Later on, another rabbi introduced another clause from the introductory statement, a woman, a woman becomes displeasing. So his thing was visual indecency. Suddenly you become, your wife isn't as pretty as she once was when you married her. And so you can get divorced for that. This is, what, this, this is the debate that Jesus is being asked to weigh in on. What Jesus is actually doing here is he's 
preaching freedom to women. Jesus hasn't come to weaken God's authority expressed in the law, but he's come to make God's claims all the more relevant and all the more applicable to his hearers' lives. This scripture has unfortunately been used to keep people, many women and some men, in abusive relationships because there technically hasn't been adultery. And yet the same people who want to apply this scripture literally seem to forget that Jesus has earlier said that if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so if you want to take Jesus' words literally, are only for adultery, before that, his literal words are, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, which is then grounds for divorce for every single one of us in this room. For who has not looked at another person with lust? In their eyes. I said, I said with a smile on my face. It's the reason I preach in loose-fitting shirts, right? I don't want people to stumble. <laughs> with holes in my jeans. Yes, but that's fun. It's, it's only my knees. It's only my knees. <laughs> so I think what we sometimes forget is that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is God-breathed, which means all of Scripture is Jesus' words. And so we, when we're self-righteous and we consider ourselves the holders of truth and not the seekers of truth, we say, what did Jesus say? Well, what does the Bible say? Because all of, what the, all of Scripture is Jesus' words. Sure, sure he, taught, he taught directly into some things while he was here on earth. But what he taught was not against any and all of the rest of Scripture. Paul goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is being sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is being sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live at peace. So, Paul here provides a deviation from Jesus' words. Jesus says, only for adultery. And Paul says, yes, but if, if your spouse becomes an unbeliever or is, or is an unbeliever and they choose to leave, then let them leave. The reason that he does this is that the, ch the church in Corinth were Gentiles and they were facing an issue that the hearers of Jesus' words, being Jews, were not faced with. And so Paul is not contradicting Jesus' words here. Paul's providing clarity to them. So when Jesus teaches the Jews, the Jews would never have been in the situation where they were married to a non-Jewish person because they weren't, weren't allowed to do that and, and they would not abandon their faith because they would be put to death. So that they'd never been in that context. Here, Paul comes and he's now preaching to people who are not Jewish and that this situation arises. He's, he's not contradicting Jesus' words. He's providing actually better clarity and a better context for people who are not Jewish. So if we're to take Jesus' words in Matthew 19 alone, then what do we do with this scripture? Most of us would agree that if you marry someone and then you find out six months later that they were already married to somebody else in another city, that you, which is what we call bigamy, 
then you, would be, then you would be free to get divorced. Most of us would agree that. If a, per, if a person abandoning the faith, deserting the faith, is grounds for divorce, as it seems to be in 1 Corinthians 7 here, then what about someone who says that they're a Christian, but we found out through their life, the way that they live, that perhaps they're actually not a Christian? Is that not also biblical grounds? See, all of Scripture is God-breathed, and so there's no principle or command that we are able to ignore as it applies to our circumstance. We cannot ignore any principle or command in Scripture as it applies to our circumstance. We, can't, we also can't exalt one piece of Scripture over another. We have to take every piece of Scripture and weave it together into a tapestry that we can get a clearer plan for what God's, we can get a clearer picture of what God's plan for us is in every one of our circumstances. It's not one over the other, it's one with the other. I want to close with a scripture. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he, Jesus, said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, in, in, in Jewish culture, in Jewish times, breaking the Sabbath was the golden rule. Right? We've we got golden rules in our house. Don't just take food that's not yours out of the fridge. That's the golden rule. Right? Otherwise you end up with grumpy kids. The golden rule for the Jewish people was do not break the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath holy. God gives his law and he says this and this and this and keep the Sabbath holy. And then he says this and this and this, keep the Sabbath holy. You Breaking the Sabbath was punishable by death. Right? That's, it's the golden rule for, Sabbath, for, for, for Jewish people. So the, the Pharisees are following Jesus and they see his disciples picking. They think we've got him. He's broken the golden rule. They, what are they doing on the Sabbath? They're breaking the golden rule. And Jesus says the law that you think is the highest law that we have was created to serve man. Man wasn't created to serve that law. This is because Jesus requires a purity of heart, which is a far higher standard than the rigid adherence to the law that the Pharisees required. I think it's possible for us to apply the same principle to the issue of divorce. The law of marriage and divorce was created by God for man, not man for the law. I'm talking about mankind, not, ma not male. When the law is used to hold people in bondage in the name of strict adherence and human righteousness, then I don't believe that we're holding to Jesus' standard of a pure heart, which is a higher standard. In this passage, Jesus isn't saying disregard the law. He's not saying go ahead and break the law. He's saying return to the original heart and intent of the law. I believe that it's right for us and I believe that we can advocate not for the breaking of the law, but for a return to the original intent when it comes to marriage and divorce also. The law has at its heart righteous living that leads to human flourishing. If a marriage is causing untold damage to this, and there's no reasonable or realistic remedy to it, then I believe we choose a life at the expense of a marriage. You've heard me, you've heard me say quite heavily how high I view covenant. 
right? Above my flesh and blood. So I want you, I've put it into that context. That's my view of covenant. But I view a life as having more value than a marriage. Man, was, man wasn't created to serve the law. The law was created to serve man. A life is more important than a marriage. I'm of the firm opinion that believers should never be the cause of a divorce, but also that their marriage shouldn't be the reason for their spiritual death. My prayer is that those who are married would fight not for marriage, but for healthy marriages. That those who have been wronged through divorce would find healing and wholeness. That those who have caused divorce would find repentance and restoration. And that those who've had a moral divorce would be free. Can you stand with me, please, friends? As you, as you look at those categories on the screen, our desire for each of you is to, for every, every single one of you, is to walk in freedom. If you're not sure which, which of those categories you fit into, why don't you come and speak to one of the pastors afterwards? We'd love to help you. We don't want to fight for the institution of marriage. We want to fight for healthy marriages to be the life-giving covenants that God intended them to be. If your marriage isn't the healthy life-giving covenant that God intended it to be, again, please, come and speak to one of the pastors. We want that for you. Can you pray with me? Father, I bring to you today every person who's been affected by divorce. I pray for every child here, first of all, whose parents have been divorced. Would you heal them? Would you plant them into life-giving communities where they can find healing, where they can find spiritual mothers and fathers who represent you and your heart? I pray for every man and woman here who has been wronged through divorce. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, bring healing and wholeness would you remove guilt and shame? Would you allow them to walk in freedom into every good thing that you have for them? Father, I pray for people here today who have been the cause of a divorce. I pray that you would give them once again a high view of covenant, of how they were created. I thank you that there is forgiveness for everyone who repents. And I ask that you would give all of us the grace and the humility to walk out a path of restoration, whatever that looks like. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit to be our comforter, our healer, and the one who makes the love of the Father known to us. Thank you for the freedom that we have, the freedom that is found in following you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, thank you for being here this evening. Please, this is not the end of a conversation. This is the beginning of a conversation. If, if you are struggling with something, again, if you're not sure which of those categories you fit into, um, come and speak to us. We, we want to help you. Our goal through this is not to give you information. Our goal through this is for you to find freedom, healing, and wholeness. Have a good rest of the week, friends. Mm -hmm.